Hello and welcome to another edition of the Red Dad Podcast. Today, my guest on the show is Jonathan Spasado. Jonathan is a local Seattle entrepreneur, investor, and a community activist. He's also a chairman of GeekWire and PicMonkey. We talk about his childhood and what it was like to be growing up in a mixed family, in a time and place when it was definitely not the norm, how that shaped his life and his outlook on the future. We also talk about his entrepreneurial endeavors, his investments, and how it all translates into a community involvement and the way he's parenting his son. Personally, I really enjoyed sitting down with Jonathan for this conversation, and I think you would too. Without further ado, Jonathan Spasado. Well, Jonathan, thank you for coming. Yeah, thank you, Kuro, for having me. Um, it's I'm, a pleasure to, to, to sit and work with you here. Yeah, I'm super excited to have you here and uh, to hear like your story about uh, how you grew up, you know, how you started your companies and how that b- made you as a person and you as a parent. Yeah, you bet. And so let's quickly start with your childhood because Uh-oh. I think it's very... Uh-oh. Yeah, it's a very unique childhood uh, where uh, you were an Asian American in the time where it was still not prevalent. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you lived in Hong Kong for a little mm-hmm. bit. Uh, then your parents, uh, your mom remarried. And yeah. can, can you tell that story? Yeah, a bit? yeah. I was born to a single mother in London. And, and actually, my mom and my birth father, uh, whom I only met uh, for the first time a couple of years ago when I was when I turned 50, I think. They they met, they fell in love, and they could not get married. The sort of, the families uh, uh, didn't allow them to get married uh, because, uh, amazingly, amongst Asian Americans um, at the time, in the late 60s, uh, if one person was Chinese and the other person was Korean, oh, you know, that's that's a big problem, right? So uh, she she had me uh, out of wedlock, and then she went for, and and they met um, in New York. And so they, she she went to London, uh, where she had some family, and then so that's where I was born. And so, and, and then, and then we came back to New York, and we lived in Brooklyn Heights back at a time when Brooklyn Heights was nowhere near what it is now. I mean, I, I hesitate to almost say Brooklyn or Brooklyn Heights because people understand it very differently now. It's it decades of gentrification. A Not at all. It was old people poor people, uh, uh, single mothers. I mean, it was like, it wasn't the ghetto per se, but there were parts that were uh, like that. And, and, but, but it was, but it was just very working class, blue collar. And we didn't actually have two dimes to rub together really. And, and at some point she couldn't afford to keep me. And so, uh, she sent me to Hong Kong to where I'd never been to live with my grandparents, to live with my maternal grandparents. And that was a fantastic experience. You know, I think my mother still feels guilty, like, Oh, I'm sorry. Sent you away. I'm like, you know, actually, that was great because I got to know my grandparents. I got to know my my auntie, uh, the, my youngest aunt, who was still living at home as a teenager at that time, and just had a great upbringing uh, and learned a lot. And I actually think it, a lot of it sort of defined uh, who I later became. So, it's interesting because you had this piece, and let me quote that real quick. Where you you wrote it on your uh, LinkedIn, and I'm going to link to that podcast. It says, it's 2 a.m., I'm 8, and I'm alone. It has been six years since my mom placed me into a yellow cab in Brooklyn, into the arms of a Chinese grandmother I'd never met. And I was whisked away to a country where everybody speaks a language I do not understand. Uh, You know, and and it continues. So by that tone, it feels like it is 
fairly dramatic experience. Or you know, it's funny. It, it was uh, uh, that, yeah, that, that was, I think, um, an, an excerpted from my book, Better Together, uh, Eight Ways Working with Women Leads to Extraordinary Products and Profits, which is really about, um, it's, it's kind of a tricky title, Better Together, but it's really about gender. It's really about how we can do better in, in the business ecosystem to uh, have more women be in positions of senior leadership and, C- and be CEOs and have really truly an equal uh, seat at the table and to do away with the institutional biases that that have caused, um, that have held women back and I- any underrepresented minority back. So I felt that it was important and a publisher and my editor and I thought that it was really important that people understood that I was coming from a place of less than myself because optically, and this is a problem, like, you know, we're, we're all very quick to judge based on the way that someone might occur. So, you know, there's nothing more insufferable than, than to hear about gender equality from a tech entrepreneur, a male tech entrepreneur, right? And so, so I had to very quickly in the first chapter talk about my past and and to make sure that that I conveyed that that was a that was a pretty traumatic thing although although I would say that for years I didn't really focus on it and it wasn't a source of trauma for me at least not that I understand maybe someone maybe my good friend um uh, who was it? Andy Sack uh, was just great about talking about the value of of understanding uh, your past and and how it's accretive to uh, who you are. And, and maybe he would say, "Oh no, no, no that that's something that clearly has some impact on you." And so, but anyway, I look forward to learning more about that. But but um, it's not something that I thought about uh, at all growing up until more recently. So, oh, interesting, because it feels like in hindsight, a lot of things you do are very much influenced by the early years, uh, right? And maybe that's or may, maybe that's why the book was written the way it is, but it does feel like you have uh, the knowledge that enables you to, in fact, comment on issues like inequality or yeah. homelessness and so yeah. forth because yeah. of your early experiences. Yeah, I think so. I th- I, yeah, I think so. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. I, I think what is true or common, for better or for worse, is that I can always see it from the point of view of somebody who is less advantaged. And I joke, you know, I'll just be honest, it, it, I, I, I mostly feel like, and I've joked with people who uh, I work with all the time, that I, and these days I, I, or I have always felt really growing up that I've, I was like the Nick Carraway to somebody else's Jay Gatsby, uh-huh. if that makes sense. So if you understand sort of what it's like to be the outsider, uh, you know, in, in the great Gatsby, I think, I think, I think Nick, Nick was the, the poor kid from the wrong side of the tracks that somehow finds himself included in, you know, the, the cool kids. And, and, and he's always kind of reflecting and observing and understanding like what, you know, what, how are these people behaving and what drives them? And, and, um, uh, and so I, I find that stuff interesting. And there's this, insider outsider mentality where if you've been more lucky than good in your life like I have I've certainly been more lucky than good um, whatever successes uh, conventional definitions of success that you can point at that I've been a part of uh, I can assure you luck was a huge component of it and so when you've had some luck over time you find yourself a part of some world that you didn't help to create that you never thought, you never dreamed when you were that seven or eight-year-old living in Hong Kong and 
and in a in kind of the, these sort of very humble in a humble two bedroom apartment in a you know a very packed and dense uh, apartment building that that you you wouldn't ever dream that someday you would be in those situations. Number one, I'm grateful, but number two, you you keep an outsider's perspective. I think almost defensively, you think that that's a way to maintain some grounding, mm-hmm. to not take things for granted, and to always appreciate how far you can go, the miracle of possibility uh, for others, and what can happen if you allow uh, room, a seat at the table for for others. And that I, I still believe that this is the greatest country in terms of um, social mobility and entrepreneurship. So if you if I believe those things, which as the chairman of Geekwire, I, I absolutely believe, uh, and as a serial uh, entrepreneur, I believe, if you believe in those things, you have to also maintain your grounding. I hope that makes sense. <clears throat> Oh, it does. And you've written about this before and how you basically keep the perspective, right? Yeah. Regardless of the wealth. And uh, I remember reading somewhere about the Microsoft days where everybody became a millionaire. Yeah. And you were saying that statistically, like 90% of lottery winners are broken three years. Uh-huh. And you've seen that happen to yeah. millionaires coming out of tech yeah. companies too. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, I may not say that 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 ninety percent of Microsoft millionaires right. uh, Hopefully became not. broke, but uh, but, <laughs> but the general statistic about yeah. lottery winners was that yeah. it's like it's over ninety percent that they become broke uh, in in a very short amount of time, whether it's in two or three years mm-hmm. or something like that. Uh, but but yeah, there were a lot that uh, we didn't know what we nobody taught us. They taught us to be great engineers and program managers and marketers and strategists and technologists, but very few of us had any kind of mentoring on how do you uh, preserve your wealth or, or invest it and to do right by it or be, or be philanthropic with it. Mm-hmm. At that time, early on, early on, I think it's a different cohort or a more mature uh, a group of folks now that are there or have stayed or they have themselves evolved and grown into that. But yeah, I'm sorry, I did cut you off. You no, no, it's great. Question. But we'll talk about Microsoft in a little bit. Can you tell me more about what it was like, though, to be a kid who just got pulled out of America and moved to Hong Kong? You don't speak the language. Yeah. Grandparents, you met them three days ago. Yeah. What was it like? Do you remember? Yeah. Um, I remember very clearly my first e- night and days in Hong Kong. I didn't understand what being jet lagged was, and I couldn't fall asleep. And I remember just laying there looking, I slept on a cot, just looking around this dark apartment and uh, it was hot and uh, everyone was sleeping and I couldn't sleep and I I have those memories. Um, I was definitely a stranger in a strange land. I didn't speak Chinese, which in Hong Kong is, was, and still is Cantonese. Mm -hmm. And so I had to learn how to speak Cantonese very quickly. I don't have a very accurate memory of how long it took for me to learn it, but I did become fluent in it and went to school and everything and didn't feel as though I was at a deficit in any way. I did feel different from the other kids. Um, I knew that I had a British passport. I knew that, you know, my friends knew that I was from the, from, that I was born in London and, and, and lived in the States. I went to a, a really great school, which I visited actually a couple of years ago for the first time. Um, it's called Rosary Hill Academy. And it was great, you know, with the uniforms and a blazer and a tie and all that stuff. And, uh, uh, and it was run by Spanish nuns. Uh, so I joked that I was the only Chinese kid born in London, 
who 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 went to a, a a school in Hong Kong run by Spanish nuns. Um, so it was a lot of fun for me. I I really have nothing but fond memories of my childhood in Hong Kong. I loved my grandparents and my aunt Marianne, and I learned so much. And I think it's it it was for me healthy to be a street kid. Mm-hmm. Um, I think later when I would come back to the United States, I was in the suburbs of Edmonds, Washington, and that was a huge culture shock for me. But to have both, to grow up sort of appreciating both. Okay, so here's what you get when you live in one of the biggest cities in the world, Hong Kong. And here's how you, you know, navigate the city on your own. And back then, I think people weren't particularly uptight about like, you know, if you're, you know, seven, eight, nine years old, you can't go anywhere alone. I mean, you could, I could just go down the street and buy myself a, a snack or comic books and come back to the apartment. You know, that was like, okay. I think it's good to have that and then at the same time, it's good to also appreciate the good and bad of being in the suburbs, right? And then you can uh, hopefully have that choice for your own family and kids. Mm-hmm. I'll make a mental note to yeah. talk about this, about your yeah, own kid yeah. now, yeah. And How, I, am I going too long no, no, so on these perfect. answers? I'm sorry, yeah, let, let me know if, it, if you want me to be more succinct. And- no, it's, uh, if in fact, if you want to go in more detail, please do, because I think it's really interesting. Do you, uh, how many years did you end up spending in Hong Kong with your grandparents? Uh, it was between the age, age of, ages of three and nine and a half, I think. So that's six and a half years. Did you get to see your mom at all during that time? No, not at all. I didn't see her at all. In fact, I, have, I, had no, I didn't know who she was, really, when I was in Hong Kong. I knew there was a mom. I knew that she was in New York. Uh, and then she would send back money. And uh, and the Christmas, like I remember a big red fire engine that I would get, which I wish that I still had, actually. You know, things like that. Yeah. So for six years, you grew up knowing you had a mom, sort of kind of having a memory of leaving your mom. but And no father. But your grandparents were basically your parents. They were my parents, yeah. Yeah. How did you reconnect back with your mom when you were finally met her at nine something yeah yeah it was well she was very i mean i i i loved her and i you know she it was but it was she was a stranger to me uh when i was nine and a half ten came back i remember my the the man that she married a really lovely man still i'm in contact with him don sposato that's how i have an italian last name right because he legally adopted me and i honor him by keeping his last name and all that. Um, he stuck out his hand, picked me up at the airport in Vancouver and said, welcome, son. And uh, I thought that was great. My mother was more shy, uh, probably more, a little more introverted. And I got to know her sl- more slowly over time. But I remember the very first night when she was showing me my bedroom and and uh, kind of how it was set up so beautifully. And, and, and um, then there was like a big Snoopy, well, big to me, but probably at the time, you know, actually like quite small, probably like, you know, 14 inches tall or something like that, but like a Snoopy stuffed animal. Uh, and it was on my bed and I recognized that Snoopy from our apartment in Brooklyn. And so that was a nice touch. And I still have that, uh, which um, uh, is kind of funny to me, but I'm not actually that nostalgic about my childhood. You still things. snuggle it to sleep. I still snuggle it. Yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, no, it's, it's, probably in a, I don't know, in some sort of, in a cardboard box somewhere. <laughs> so uh, if it's not, I hope it's not thrown thrown out by now, but, um, but, uh, but I remember that uh, she was really great. And, but, but, you know, I'll be candid that the things that I struggled with then moving forward are in Edmonds, Washington in 1976, 
you know, people didn't know what to do with a family where there was a Caucasian husband and an Asian wife. And so they would always ask, like, oh, is your mom a war bride? Was she a war bride? Is she from Vietnam? Are you Vietnamese? And that bothered me. And yeah, you know, it was, that was hard. And I was, and then at some point I stopped, I just decided to not overfunction anymore to explain to people what it was. And so I would just say like, yeah, you know, I, it's, yeah, whatever. Just, I just let them assume what they wanted to assume. And because it was just too hard to explain like, well, no, he's actually, you know, uh, he's a, you know, and, and no, we're not Vietnamese and here's what happened. It was just too much of a long story. See, I think that's Probably very still is. <laughs> that's very important because to an average white dude, racism doesn't exist and sexism doesn't exist mm-hmm. either, right? Because mm-hmm. they've never experienced yeah. it, and uh, but it clearly does. In fact, people are so ignorant that it's comical. Yeah, they can be. Yeah, there was all kinds of stuff. I mean, growing up was. I actually thought that was really good. That's both the good and bad of being out in the suburbs of Edmonds, Washington. If you're the only person of color as a kid growing up, the experiences that you end up having really galvanize you, right? And I know, you know, in this day and age, I'll go on record to say that in the context of this day and age where at schools with our kids, because this is ultimately about being a parent, right? If our kid gets picked on, you know, we don't condone fighting or anything like that. But I will go on record to say that I have told my 10-year-old boy, uh, especially when he was younger, that if anybody hurts you physically, you stand up for yourself and you you punch back. Because, because number one, they're not, they're not going to hurt each other. They're, they're, they're not. They're flexible. Fine. They're flexible. <laughs> Don't grow a limb back. <laughs> um no, but in all seriousness, it's it's more this concept of if you learn, if you learn that bullies can very quickly become a shrinking violet if you hit back, I think that's a powerful lesson. And that's a lesson that benefits you moving forward. And I think that if you if you learn to then sort of apply your power uh, judiciously and fairly, I just think that those are good lessons. Let's talk more about this because indeed- Sure, all kinds of people are going to be mad at me now, like school administrators, and and now we're going to get kicked out of our school. So anyway. (laughs) Uh, Right. You're not behaving like the right type of parent they were looking for when, yeah, which (laughs) schooling and the fact that they select parents, not actually children as a whole. And by the way, to be clear, I'm uh, saying if the other kid, if there's a pattern of bullying, the other kid is like picking on your kid and then then the other kid hits first. Yeah. As a father, and I would say this to a daughter or a son- you have my permission to hit back. Yeah, I've implied that to my four-year-old already, so I, I'm, uh, I'm with you on this. But it's interesting because we grew up in a bubble. I, I also grew up in a city in St. Petersburg, Russia, and mm. so it was a very different. I'd love to know more about uh, that. Yeah, it was a very different experience to you know being in suburbs right now, yeah. where my kids are growing up. Mm-hmm. Just for the record, Jonathan, dogs are running around and they're adorable. Are they bothering you? No, they're adorable. Can you hear their little? Trip trapping on the floor. It's great. Okay. It's audience, live audience. Okay. So what, what do you think of this environment we've created for ourselves and our kids? Because suburbs are great. They're safe-ish, you know, but that's boring. 
Mm-hmm. And it goes from the way we live to exactly the way, because uh, I've also experienced bullying in school. And I, mm, that's why, that. I, oh, it's fine. I, I, in fact, I'm nodding because I think it was valuable experience. Because mm-hmm. if you've never experienced that, you just assume mm-hmm. that everybody's happy-go-lucky and, you know, world yeah. is nice and dandy. Yeah, and everybody's just going to give you whatever you want <laughs> and everyone's going to like you. You just show up and great things happen. No, if you've experienced bullying or you've been a person who's uh, made to feel less than, maybe the only person of color somewhere, whatever, or 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 convert, you know, I've heard stories where if someone's the only white person in a uh, in, in a community of color, and and if you've ever been experienced being a minority and and you've been picked on for that, I think it you lose very quickly this notion that you can just show up and be your charming self and people give you things. But at the same time, I think you learn that. Actually, bullies have no power. Yeah. I mean, phys- physical strength is like the last resort, but mm-hmm. if they got there, they already lost. Yeah, right. Uh, True. Right? So how do we give this to our kids, that dynamic? I mean, you don't really want your kids to get hurt. Like you kind of don't want them to experience bullying, but at the same time, you want them to experience the dynamic range of life. Yeah. Uh, you know, now, now that your son is 10 years old, mm-hmm. um, how have you been approaching this? Well, I would say, you know, there's good and bad in the sense that nowadays, I think there's so much that we know about social, emotional learning and how they're teaching kids to recognize uh, when someone is being a bully and to also understand that bullying is not, is hurtful. I I think that's really good. But having said that, it does happen still. and And I think again, my approach is to make it okay for him to stand up for himself and and to stand up for others, just to be clear, mm-hmm. to stand up for others. I think that's an important thing to activate in a young person. Like, like the, I, I think my, our most powerful lessons are around when he comes home and talks about, hey, you know, everybody was sort of, you know, so-and-so was being um, sort of stupid or silly and then we were all kind of making fun of her and i'm like uh, uh, wait a minute let's tell me more about that why what did she do that was that deserved that and and why were you all jumping on you know on her and what 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 did you realize that it's it's many against one and that's inherently probably unfair and and how how would she feel uh being on the receiving end of that so do you feel like that you needed to join that or might you take a step back and think, oh, wait a minute now. I think we're, we could be wrong in how we're looking at it. She didn't intend to, you know, disrespect us and maybe we don't all need to jump her, jump on her case. And so anyway, so I do, hopefully that answers your question. I think, I think being very real and candid about those issues with your 10 year old uh, is, is important. I love that you're saying this because I think in general, parents love to preserve their kid's childhood. Mm-hmm. And um, I'll find this segment and add it to the podcast, but I remember people talking specifically. It was, I think, either a school instructor or somebody basically with a lot of experience working with children, how she was saying that uh, you can teach kids a lot of things, uh, adult things. You just don't have to name them the same things. You, you, if you bring the subjects down to their level, they're actually very curious. And yeah, you, you, yeah uh, that's right. Oh, that, that's what it was. It was a TED talk entitled How to Teach Your Kids About Consent. Mm-hmm. And she was like, usually when you say that, people go, whoa, mm-hmm. you know, that's sexual topic. Yeah, you don't want to yeah, talk yeah. about I've this. Yeah, I've got some funny ones up there on that. Uh, but, but the point there was consent is not really about 
sex. It's about a power dynamic, a relationship, person's rights. There's a lot that you can talk about yeah. with a six-year-old and actually explain the whole subject as long as you talk about where they fit in the society, you know, in, yeah. and their friends and so forth. Yeah, yeah, that's so, right. Yeah, I, I agree uh, wholeheartedly. I think that there is a way to talk to children, both candidly, but but in a way that 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 makes sense to them. That you can kind of remove the uh, some things. Um, yeah, consent is one of them. Or you know, you're you're doing that thing that we we all have this where we're listening to NPR in the morning, driving our kids to school, and then you just you know you can't you can't go around switching the station every time there's news about. Donald Trump uh, sexually harassing, uh, you know, uh, I don't know how many it is, like 32 women or something like that. And, you know, grabbing things and, and your kid in the back is like, what does that mean? Yeah. You know, then, but to explain it in terms of uh, consent or privacy or your body is yours and you have to, you know, somebody else has to have, per you can't touch somebody without their permission. I think that that's just, that's one way of, of making that issue um, clear. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We got a little bit sidetracked. Yeah, there. yeah, no, yeah, sorry but, about that. No, it's great. We were, but we were talking about uh, you in Hong Kong, and eventually you came back, sort of started rolling with your family. And then I found, that from from what I've read, I found your relationship with your mom sort of interesting. Because, mm. uh, you know, fast forward a little bit, when you were in college mm -hmm. and you called her to ask whether she, she'd like to stay over for a graduation, mm -hmm. And that's when she decided to break news that, that your parents were getting divorced and that they probably right. weren't coming to your graduation. Correct. Was that kind of your childhood? Because that's a very emotionless experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It just feels very cold, but you love your mom. So like, mm -hmm. how did mm -hmm. you balance that growing up? That's a really astute observation. Although I would, uh, for just the benefit of the listeners, I certainly would not uh, define my mother as emotionless. Uh, she's probably quite the opposite. Uh, but that moment was sort of, in some ways, a defining moment because it, it lit a fire under me to, in some ways, catalyze my ambition, if you want to call it that. Um, when you realize that you're not going to be able to come home after you graduate, that was really the moment. It wasn't so much that they couldn't come up to see me graduate Maybe that was okay. And my mom made it on her own, I think, without my dad. My dad at that point had already moved out and moved to Foster City in uh, California. So he wasn't going to come up. And, and there's, you know, we'll bookmark that there's sort of a lesson there. You'd really never know when is the last time you'll see someone. Like when was the last opportunity that you could have had to say goodbye to someone for a while until after the fact, right? Uh, and that's true when our friends die. You're like, oh, you know, I hadn't seen him in a few months, and I guess the last time we had coffee was, that was it. And uh, I never had a chance to tell him that I loved him, you know, that kind of thing. So uh, with my dad, I felt that, oh, and, and, and of course, I, I, I reconnected with him later. Um, but, but it was more that I couldn't come home, because she said that, you know, and don't bother coming home. When you pack up your stuff, you know, and, and drive home, don't come home because we're selling a house. So you, you're kind of on your own here. And so I literally hung up the phone. It was on a Friday or Thursday. And I got in my car, drove home, interviewed with my old boss. Uh, I really asked him, like, you know, hey, when you said that I could always come back and work here, did you mean it? Yeah. 
you know, but I still had to go and get that taken care of and talk with some other people, interview with some other people so that they didn't think that I was um, uh, not up to snuff. And, and, and so I uh, got a, you know, shook hands on, on a verbal job offer, drove back Saturday or Sunday, packed up my stuff. Oh, and I took fine, finals week was, I hadn't taken my finals yet. Then took my finals and then graduated. And so I had a job lined up before I took my finals, which was good. And then I never really looked back. I, I always thought that that was, it was sort of my path to move forward, to make something of myself, to, to carve out my place in the world. And I have to admit that I reflexively kind of bristle at you know, if someone was to say, I remember a, a good friend saying, you know, aren't you going to, like when Holden is is graduating from college, aren't you going to help him with his first, get his first job or, and then help him with his, you know, first and last month's rent on his first apartment. And then later when he gets married, when wants to start a family, aren't you going to help him with the down payment on his house? And I understand that maybe the world is different than it was in 1989. Mm-hmm. And that it's harder for young people to do those things. But reflexively, I sort of bristle at that stuff. I'm like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to deny him the opportunity at the American dream and the satisfaction of earning all of that through your own efforts. No disrespect to anybody who got to live at home after they graduated, you know, got to live with their parents for a few years. No respect to anybody that had their parents help them get a job or you know, first and last month's rent or, or when they bought a house, you know, mom and dad gifted them the down payment. I don't disrespect those folks at all. In fact, I feel like that's lovely. That's wonderful. But for my child, I want him to feel like, yeah, man, fucking A, I did that. From your experience? You're smiling. Like, I'm not sure if you're like, oh my God, this guy's off his rocker or... Uh... No, I think it's great because I can I can feel both like, you know, from what you were saying when when I graduated, I moved out of t- to Seattle cuz I wanted to start a startup and I didn't want to go, you know, work at Starbucks so that I could like so I got You're young I, enough that Starbucks was an option for you when you graduated. <laughs> yeah, it just seems silly to me to go get somewhere a temporary job and to waste time where mm-hmm. I could learn at a much faster pace doing something that I really wanted to do. That on one hand, on the other hand, you know, parents contributing to the down payment, I can also uh, relate to that. Yeah, and, yeah. and so yeah, that's what I mean. No disrespect. I, I, it's hard, man. How, yeah. Again, you're younger. You're like a younger generation. It's, it, houses are expensive, yo. Yeah. Uh, so. Uh, <laughs> But no, uh, I'm curious, given your experience investing in entrepreneurs and you know, doing your own companies, do you feel this is one of the defining factors for entrepreneurs, the ability to actually uh, move fast and make these otherwise hard decisions very quickly and uh, very unassumingly in a sense? Because finals week, most people are cramming, mm-hmm. you know, get, getting really anxious about the test they're mm-hmm. taking. They don't get call from their mom saying, uh, there's no house, we're divorced, I'm not coming, mm-hmm. you, you, know, you know, and then you just figured it out mm-hmm. and it was just another day. Mm-hmm. Um, do, do you think that's actually an important aspect that? Yes, I think so. I think it's, it's a kind of a cluster of attributes that might include maybe, as you said, decisiveness and then, or stupidity. Uh, and, and, also, this quality of moving fast and not wasting time. It's like once you've made a decision, then let's move. You don't need to fret over it for weeks. 
And there's some very interesting thinking around that, you know, that, that old, um, uh, in fact, one of the most influential books that I read when I was in my early twenties was the one minute manager, uh, which I've kind of forgotten the details, but there's some, and there's been new updates to that school of thought. And, and there is also similar thinking about the one minute decision or the, or how you can make decisions quickly and, or give yourself like a day to make that decision. And, and then whatever it is that you decide, you just commit to that and move on. And so you kind of limit the amount of analysis paralysis that you, we might all naturally are predisposed to have. And I think that's, those are very interesting thoughts may not work for everybody, but, um, but I do think that a, a, a key, a critical set of factors for entrepreneurial success are decisiveness, moving fast, commitment to a path. Like you don't, always sometimes it's good to hedge your bets but you don't you, you generally don't you commit and and maybe there's an escape route or or a way that you're hedging but you're spending the vast majority of your energy and resources on the committed path um so i never assumed that my parents would somehow magically like my mom would get her apartment situation figured out once she sold the house and then i could you know uh, live in her spare bedroom i never 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 assumed that and, and it was good, right? Because actually, actually, as a matter of fact, I think it was within my first couple of paychecks that my parents, both separately, uh, now that they're divorced, uh, needed my fan- financial support. So I helped them out. Mm-hmm. And that were, those are some powerful lessons too. So, but you know, you, you can't rely on, you know, just, uh, just oh, self-sufficiency, I think is, a, is that third element where you, the buck really stops with you. You don't have some other giant HR division in another building helping you hire people. You don't have another marketing division or a product support division, you know, at, at, and I've been there. I've been inside the belly of the beast, mm-hmm. so to speak. Uh, I've been, I was at Microsoft for 12 years. I was at Google twice. It, you have, when you're at a big company, it is completely set up, optimized to let you do you. You just, if you're a product manager, you just think up of cool new shit, cool new features uh, to create that would be accretive to the company's success. And they don't need you to also uh, worry about how to figure out payroll, how to deduct this new uh, city tax out of somebody's, you know, uh, a paycheck because the city of Seattle changed their laws. Um, so, so, so as an entrepreneur, you really have to understand that the buck stops with you and you have to be incredibly self-sufficient. So these are all cliche things that I'm sure your audience, you know, has heard many times before from smarter <laughs> people than I. Oh, I think you're pretty smart. And actually, I do want to know about, you know, you, I think you downplay the fact that you're pretty smart. sounds like you've always done pretty well in school because that was the Asian household where, you know, A minus was not a thing. No, A minus is, you might as well have gotten a D. (laughs) (laughs) But you learn to be tricky. You learn to work this, you learn to, no, I was always a hack, man. I was not, no, I mean, I was always on the receiving end of my mother telling me like, oh, you should see my girlfriend Millie's daughters. They both got into Brown. Oh, actually, one got into Harvard, but said no because she wanted to be at Brown with her sister. You know, it'd be like that. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> see, <laughs> Thanks, mom. Uh, see what I mean is like, well, my um, 
my wife is Asian, so I can kind of feel a little. I actually didn't know that. I haven't met her. Yeah, so I, I, we I, can have a whole other podcast about what exactly it's like to be just, to an Asian uh, person, I'll, spouse. Yeah. I'll, I'll I'll bring my wife. Yeah, can we do that? Can uh, we have that podcast? Uh, I think it'd be lovely. Yeah. yeah, it might get a million downloads in the first day. It absolutely just, would. Uh, yeah, yeah. But that's what I was implying when I uh, said about you know lack of emotion and delivering that message because I think. A lot of Asian parents don't even think about that as needing emotion, right? Like some things are just straightforward facts. This is yeah. what it is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You you go do you. Yeah. Uh, which is interesting because I think it shaped you to be who you are, right? Yeah. And um, is that how you're going to be uh, uh, treating your son? Or are you trying no. to be more warm and fuzzy? I think I'm more warm and fuzzy with him. I think it's important to show that affection is important, verbal, whatever your love language is. I think I'm doing them all with him, right? Whether it's acts of kindness or words of affection or physical affection and maybe not the gifts part, you know, actual gifts, um, because I think that kids don't need to be spoiled with, you know, needless stuff. So, but I tell him all the time that I love him. Probably couple of times daily. If we're just, if there's a lull or a dull moment, if I'm feeling it, we're cuddling, I say, Hey buddy, I love you. You know, no matter what. And he, and he, he will come back with something sincere uh, almost always. Sometimes he'll tell me to shut up <laughs> or, or not shut up because I'm like, dad, okay, enough. But, but most of the time he's like, I love you too, dad. And that's a, and that I think to normalize, especially men mm-hmm. or boys to grow up to be the kind of men who can say things like that it's not a bad thing, right? So, so I would say that I'm not unemotional, or I, I, I try to express emotion and to show a range of of uh, human expression with him mm-hmm. to model the right behavior. You know, the key thing is also model behavior where you always come back to a good place. Um, if you can always say whether it's to another loved one like my wife or to my mother or whatever. Uh, after a heated argument or you're not talking for a couple of hours, you say, hey, I'm sorry about that. And even though we may, st- may still disagree, I love you anyway, right? And so now my 10-year-old, he's he's hilarious about that. Like sometimes he'll have a tantrum, stomp off into his room, slam the door. And then like about five minutes later, he goes, dad, I love you anyway. Slam. <laughs> so... I think that's hilarious. I'll always remember that. That sounds pretty cute. I think people can find a lot of information about you and your startups. And, you know, that's, oh, that's been talked about. Uh, well, you did pretty well, like you said. You're the, More lucky than good, my friend. Yeah, More but you're still the good. only person to have sold two companies to Google. Uh, I mean, that's pretty tricky. In a row. Right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, right. <laughs> um, while had been raised by Spanish nuns. Um, uh-huh, that's right, yep. There you go. But everything you know about entrepreneurship and what you learn in Microsoft in yeah. 12 years, plus your startups, plus the people you've invested in, mm-hmm. uh, what do you? Th- uh, how do you take that and influence your own life, your kids and people around us yeah. uh, n- with that knowledge? Yeah, um, a couple of things. One is the importance of taking risk and to be so... Now, of course, if you were to say... It's almost like I, I heard a, it, it, that saying, like if you ask someone, if they're, you ask a hundred people, hey, are you racist? You know, they would all, a hundred people would say, no, I'm not racist. <laughs> so why does racism exist? So things like the, fo- like the following things about entrepreneurship, like taking risk, uh, recognizing value add ideas, 
or uh, hiring really well, all those critical success factors to entrepreneurship and building great companies. If you were to ask people, would you, would you agree with, would you agree with those things? They would all, hundred people would say, yeah, those are all the things that we do or want to do. Mm-hmm. But I think what happens, what prevents pe- some people from doing those things is that they, they lack a certain self-awareness. So I think you start there. So I try to tell Holden, hey, have self-awareness. This is where maybe you're getting into a pattern. This is where maybe you're letting your anxiety get the better of you. Like you're saying, no, you don't want to go to this coding camp because you don't know anybody there, right? Now, remember how last week you also did the same thing But then when we went, you loved it. Mm -hmm. Like after the first day, you're like, oh my gosh, this is the best camp ever. So it's possible, would you agree, that that could happen again? And so so things like that, just being self-aware is a great place to start. Then I think things like taking risk and and, and not being afraid to try new things. You know, the other framework that sometimes I've heard people put it in is whether you're in a growth mindset or in a fixed mindset. And it is incredibly important to entrepreneurs, successful entrepreneurs, to be in a growth mindset. Starting GeekWire with John and Todd, I believe was the result of being in a growth, all of us being in a growth mindset. With me in particular, I had no, I was not a journalist. I am still not a journalist. I had nothing to do with that kind of a media play, a media business. I knew that I had been on a receiving end of especially John Cook's interviews, and I knew what that was like. I also knew that what the, what the ecosystem, what the Pacific Northwest tech ecosystem, which was at the time, you know, if you rewind a clock back 10 years, Amazon was not as big a deal. Microsoft was kind of more in a lull. Uh, 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 Facebook had not opened an office here yet. Google's office was incredibly small here, and it, it, there weren't as many companies, and there wasn't as much money going into starting startups. If you go back to that time, you had to really make that bet, take that risk. You know what? We have a shot. This is really the vision. We have a shot at creating the Seattle tech ecosystem and a community around it to have it be just as respected and vibrant and dynamic and interesting as the Bay Area. Everybody wants to talk about the Bay Area and how amazing Silicon Valley is and has been. And it is amazing. But we can be that too. Even better in many ways. That culturally, we're better because of these values that are more endemic to the Northwest. So taking that risk is a great example of being in a growth mindset because it's like, well, I'm not going to do another consumer internet or a SaaS business like I had been doing. Mm -hmm doesn't have to be another photos company, although I did that too, you know, because I didn't feel like I was done with photos. Let's do a media company. Let's do news. How about that? As it turns out, uh, you know, I was going to joke, John and Todd cover your ears. Uh, you know, reporters are a lot cheaper than engineers. Uh, yeah, and I've told those guys that, so already, already they know this. But, but, you know, the cost structure of how you can yield a lot of output and page views and you know whatever whatever subscribers downloads whatever it is that that is accretive to your business's success you can the ratio of your your cost per employee is radically different 
than in consumer SaaS software development. So that was interesting to me. Other things interesting to me were the fact that there were nine ways to Sunday to monetize, right? Uh, you weren't locked into necessarily a SaaS model. There was a sponsorship model. There was an events model. There's a, a membership model. Uh, there is um, just an advertising model. If all else fails, you can just you know uh, uh, have your page views be monetizable. So, so, so those that was interesting was the vast degrees of freedom on monetization. The last thing that I thought of, which is just a bonus, or, or you know, the thing that I didn't think of, and it just became this bonus, was really our place in the community and how it's become a, a convening platform to bring all kinds of people together. You know, whether it's it's elected officials mixing and networking with the area's top CEOs or the top scientific researchers or academics or gamers or sort of or other media folks that is just a bonus of that and and that and, that, and that's uh, by the way like you know uh the credit goes to john and todd for having of uh they're really the operators and builders and and workers uh, uh, or the people doing doing things working uh to provide this output and hiring great people and and thinking through processes uh, you know, I just kind of come in on occasion and uh, try not to cause up too much trouble. <laughs> so it's been almost 10 years of GeekWire's existence? Yes, that's right. It's about 10 years. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's the age of our children. We were all, uh, our wives were pregnant. or Actually, Holden had already been born. I think Jack, James, uh, John's son, had already been born just a few months. I think Holden was six months. James was three months. And then Todd's wife might have been pregnant or something like that. Yeah, we can reference with John's podcast. Yeah, we can reference that back. Yeah, yeah. My, my memory's foggy. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think you guys have been overall more successful uh, in the last 10 years with, with the goal of GeekWire? And like you said, the, the idea was to enable tech entrepreneurship in Seattle, build a community. Or, uh, I mean, you obviously have been successful, but... You know, what has worked and what didn't? What do you think? Yeah, yeah, you bet. Happy to talk about that. Um, so largely we've been successful in some ways and, and in some ways not. So I think that we did succeed at the things that I talked about prior, like being kind of a convening platform. We've built, you know, we we sort of coalesced a community. And to be clear, the community would have, if market forces were left alone, the community would have coalesced in some other way, I'm sure. But I think we we we, we enabled a slightly different version of it and a more, I would like to think, a more interesting and dynamic version of it where it was also more inclusive. Uh, prior to GeekWire, all of the industry events in the tech industry here in Seattle were a lot of stuffed shirts. Uh, they were sort of boring events at hotel lobbies where where it's a lot of, you know, old guys in suits, bad suits. Nothing wrong with old guys in bad suits uh, per se, but if that's all you have, uh, that isn't very fun for a budding, uh, say, woman of color, uh, younger, who who's trying to be an entrepreneur and pursue her version of the American dream, right? So, so um, I think that we've succeeded there. We've succeeded in the core function of the core value of being a nationally recognized technology news, you know, business news site uh, that is rooted in the Pacific Northwest. You know, I think that gives us a different flavor than TechCrunch or Wired, which, you know, on a tech meme leaderboard, we're right up there with, right? So that's, uh, I'm very proud of that. So we succeeded in that way. 
I would say to ways that we have not succeeded, and I know that I own it uh, more than John and Todd, are really on the business side of maximizing our potential. There are ways in which we need to be more or can be much more thoughtful about uh, customer lifetime value, uh, what causes people to come back, what causes us to lose them. And they don't want to look at us anymore or come to our events. Is there more value we can uh, imbue in our membership programs that would make it even more value add? Are there uh, better partnerships we can foster? And strategically, what are the new areas of growth that that would uh, not grow to, for growth's sake, but to where where we can get a one plus one equals three, right? So the Portland area is a really great example of that, where we had um, a um, a desk a bureau chief down there uh, for a while, and and I think that that didn't really work out for us uh, as well as it. I, I think that it it was fine uh, while it lasted, but then we went our separate ways, and and but but that was a good example of where one plus one equals three, right? Portland is kind of synergistic with Seattle. Are there other? Is Austin another one? Is L.A. another one? Is 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 um, uh, New York another one? Is 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 uh, even Hong Kong overseas, right? So I think getting past our operational and procedural hurdles, our growth and scale challenges are all things that, quite frankly, I could be much more of a hard ass on. Uh, but as I was, I think, uh, describing um, over a cup of coffee with you before we actually started a podcast, you know, there was a period of a number of years, I think at least four or five years, where I did necessarily take my eye off the ball a little bit with GeekWire as my other company, PicMonkey, really started to grow and and had those very same business challenges. And I, the businesses needed me a little bit more and spent more time on PicMonkey and then kind of changed the, the allocation of number of days at PicMonkey versus GeekWire. And, and then PicMonkey, you know, got outside shareholders and they were sort of you know, I think scratching their heads like, what? What is this other GeekWire thing? And and so so I in taking my bo- eyes off of the ball a little bit at GeekWire, which which by the way, John and Todd being amazing business partners enabled me to do so. Right? It was okay because I'm like, okay, the business is in good hands. I no longer have to sign off on every hire or, uh, you know, back in the old days, you know, I interviewed every employee and, 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 and we would meet and huddle on, like, if we did have to let someone go, we would all three talk about that and kind of look each other in the eye to make sure that we were on the same page. Those things started to happen, uh, with less and less frequency. They were less necessary because they were making the right calls. So uh, that enabled me to to step back a little bit from GeekWire, uh, which which may change um, now that I have more time uh, from away from the other things. So so I, I think that we've won on some things and we still have a lot more headroom to grow and do other things. <laughs> so GeekWire is doing great. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could definitely expand, and I think you should totally expand to Hong Kong and other places mm-hmm. because it would give Seattle readers a yeah. window into other places. I'm sure and John and Todd are having a heart attack if they hear this. <laughs> what? We're expanding to Hong Kong? Now, Hong Kong was just one example of just kind of a, a wacky example of where I think that a, while we already have a national presence, it would be interesting to try something international. It would be really interesting, and all you need is, like you said, reporters are 
cheaper than engineers. So you can hire one guy. Mm-hmm. And places like Hong Kong, Taiwan, and other places in Asia, where there's plenty of people who Just write and speak on. beautiful English, yeah. right? So yeah. you don't even have to worry about that. But you were also, um, you did the photo companies, you did a gaming company, you did GeekWire, among other mm-hmm. things. But you're also outspoken about other issues like normal people's issues mm-hmm. like homelessness or you know the fact that women are not being paid as much as men mm-hmm. or oh, why because and I'm, I mean it's kind of tongue in cheek question I guess because it's just there's so many wealthy people who don't care or at least publicly don't seem to invest in those areas and you're very public about it about actually trying to create a community around you that will survive and strive right like is that your upbringing is that just Jonathan being a good guy who wants the world to be a better place? No, 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 no. Well, it is, I think it's more upbringing and the influence of others and good people in our community who've who've been great role models. And there are many. Because I think that our actions or even our values, to some extent, you know, probably someone like Sam Harris will talk about how even our thoughts are the result of something else. So I don't know, if you pull on that thread really far, I don't know how much you, any of us could really credit ourselves or pat ourselves on the back for being a good person or whatever. I think that we're all sort of the product of our own, of upbringing and context and things like that and, and influences. And so I would say that I'm the same. And I feel like there's so much more work to do. And as it relates to being a parent, I know one thing that I think about a lot is you have to model the right behavior for your child. You cannot expect your son or daughter to do the right things if you yourself are not doing those things. I think they learn much more by observing what you do than being told. Mm -hmm. So I think that is probably a powerful driver of my philanthropy. And I I don't even have it exactly right either, by the way. I I think I fumbled around with, oh, I'm going to say yes to this. I'm going to say yes to that. And over time, you're like, well, hmm, in terms of philanthropic things, these are things that are maybe they're not really that important versus this other philanthropic cause, which affects all of us in King County. Or there's a way to very efficiently move the needle with thousands of people versus just a few who may be already there anyway, who are okay at the end of the day. So that's how I focused on homelessness and also gender as my two top issues. I mean, nobody needs to be told that we have a problem with homelessness in King County. And there's been a lot of cynicism around that stuff. There's been a lot of, you know, Seattle's dying. And I say, heck no, Seattle's not dying. It's really thriving as a matter of fact. And because we're thriving, a certain segment of Seattle is sick, has the cold or the flu, right? That's what I'd say. But we're not Seattle in general, is not dying. So we need to not be cynical. We need to not blame the victim. We need to understand causality and lean into it and face the music and not be defensive. We need to understand that when the city does things that seem counterintuitive, but based on research, say, for example, safe injection sites, right? That that's coming from a place of where they have the data that tells them that that's the way to on-ramp the drug addicted to uh, health services, that that has a very high conversion rate, right? And so it seems counterintuitive. Well, why is public money being spent on safe injection sites? 
think it through, man, before you react emotionally and, and be like, oh, well, we're condoning drug use and that's the freaking problem, right? We're not tough enough on criminals. And, and, and by the way, this, there's this myth that all the homeless, especially from this, you know, Como news special, Seattle is dying. There's this myth that the homeless, they're all drug addicts. Did you say meth? Myth. Yeah. Oh, did I say math? Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Right. Uh, yeah. That's a, that, are you referencing Andrew Yang? <laughs> no. Uh, just the fact that there's a notion that all the homeless are drug addicts. Meth, you know. In, oh, meth. 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 I'm sorry. Yeah. Mis- Misunderstanding. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. No. So only, as it turns out, only, it's, it's like 23 or 26%. I'm off by just a couple of, a little bit there. Um, only that percentage is uh, addicted to things like, narcotics, the, the general uh, segment of drugs that's considered narcotics. And then an over an overlapping and superset, a broader percentage, if you add in alcoholism, then that's like 40% mm. of the total. So if you take the 12,000 people who are homeless in King County every night, right? What is 60% of that 12,000? That's like, a, a, you know, almost 7,000 people. There are 7,000 people who are homeless who live in their cars and their RVs who are not on drugs, right? And maybe they lost their apartment. They maybe they lost their job. Maybe they got sick. Maybe they got divorced. A couple, usually a couple of factors. And a lot of them even have jobs that they go to and they're secretly homeless, right? They shower at work or at their school. Anyway, they deserve our help. And even the folks who are using drugs, they deserve our help too. But, but so I think it's wrong to get super cynical about it and have a combative attitude and to be negative about it. And I got to admit, I might be one of the cynical people, mm. but also listening to you, it's, um, it's great to put things in perspective because you just said 12,000 homeless people, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. if you think about it, that's like, 10 high school buildings full of homeless people or like a small neighborhood that's entirely homeless. So when you kind of visualize what that Mm -hmm. number means and then think of everybody talking about homeless people being on drugs, Mm -hmm. here we talk, or, you know, or people who are clearly just using homelessness as a business. But Mm -hmm. now we're talking about a few people versus thousands and thousands of people who actually need help. So, so in that perspective, I yeah, I, I do love this argument. Yeah, no, you really do have to look at the the math, as as I thought that you had alluded to earlier, and 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 it's we only react to the worst cases, right? To what we can see. I I to this day, just yesterday, a homeless man approached me who was pretty incoherent and was physically kind of was just a kind of, in some ways, a worst case scenario, like was kind of physically a little repulsive in terms of hygiene and things like that, smelled really bad. And it was harder for me, I admit, to find a place, to approach from a place of compassion. He approached me and was very aggressive about like, hey, can I borrow? You know, I couldn't even understand him at first. Uh, I think there was mental illness there, clearly smelled really bad. And so, I remember after I gave him $20, and sometimes money is not, oftentimes money is not the right answer. But, and I, we don't have to digress, but, but I can explain why I felt that that was appropriate at that time to give him $20. But as I drove away, as I got in, back into my car and drove away, I felt that I had this very visceral reaction because we're hardwired as human beings a certain way to be like, oh, that was so unpleasant. And I sort of didn't want to, I wanted to blame him. Like, God, why can't, why does he have to, you know, why does he have to be so aggressive? Or why does he, 
But then, but then after literally like 20 seconds, I'm like, uh, you know, I don't have the full context of his story. And he's clearly been on the streets a long time. And it is hella hard to live on the streets, to get beat up, to get your money stolen from you. The only way that you can stay warm is to drink, to have everybody not to look at you with dispersion and, and kind of treat you like a second-class citizen. Those are not fun things. So I, so I get it. I get the reaction that a lot of people have where it's like, oh, freaking Seattle's dying and, you know, why don't we do something? And, you know, and, and we should do something. And, and just to, to put a positive, there are a lot of things that are working. The number of homeless has actually gone down from about 12,000 to, to, I don't know, about 11,000. Went down by about 8 eight or 9% this last year. Precisely because there are great organizations like the United Way of King County and Mary's Place and, and many, many, you know, there's eviction reform and diversionary tactics and, and rent assistance that, that we, we keep people from becoming homeless, we get the homeless rapidly rehoused. These are great organizations and these things are working. So again, don't, don't, you know, we shouldn't be cynical and say, well, there's still a bunch of homeless people. So clearly these agencies are bozos. So screw them. Seattle's dying, right? No, that's, that's not it. Double down on the things that are working. And you're seeing now that the problem is getting addressed. This is an excellent point to wrap things up. Because honestly, I think you're so multidimensional. We could probably talk for another four hours and record all of that. And that would be interesting. So maybe that's for the next episode. I want episode. to know more about you the next time uh, we're on. I want to be- Excellent. So we've got at least three more episodes yeah. with Jonathan <laughs> right. and me. But what, speaking of, uh, you know, opportunity for the city, and we talked a little bit about your bringing and how you're as a parent with everything combined. Like, what do you think uh, we should do as parents, as a society, to kind of move us forward in a positive direction, holistically. Like, you're already doing a lot of philanthropically, but, you know, it starts with your children. Like, you, you teach them right things to do. You teach them the right logic. What, what else do you think? Like, anything that comes to mind, you know, in between, like, the coding camps to being uh, good to your peers, right? Like, what are maybe the top five, ten things you think yeah. parents should focus on? Yeah, to- yeah. I'll, I'll give you some uh, in kind of rough descending order of importance to us. Um, Number one is self-sufficiency. And with that, also a lack of entitlement to things. Nobody's going to give you nothing for free here. So go and earn it. And that kind of self-sufficiency, he will do well no matter what. The second thing is always look for ways to build bridges. So in a society that's becoming increasingly more divisive, Let's not add to the divisiveness, you know, let's find common ground. And I really think it's true. We, we, whether it's, it's, it's conservatives versus progressives or whatever, we actually have more in common as Americans as than we do differences. And I think that's important. Doesn't mean we shouldn't be passionate about where we're different, but there's always a way to say it more kindly, to say something more respectfully to say things in a way that doesn't prematurely make the other person disagree with you because you're pushing them away and angering them. So that's, that's another uh, one. Another important one is be the change that you want to see. A lot, our human reflex is to step back and to complain. If you don't like something, be the change that you want to be. And 
oftentimes I think people are surprised when they do that, that, oh my gosh, I actually did catalyze that to change. You know, Leslie Feinzig is a great example, the Female Founders Alliance. You know what? There's no incubator, tech incubator for women. So I'll start that, right? And she's doing great. You know, and there are others that are like, who, who do the same, you know, first example that popped in my head here, but there are many others. And I think lastly, never underestimate, and I'm wanting to be realistic about this, but humans have a capacity to be both good and bad. Never underestimate the capacity for us to be good if given a chance. So it's sort of related to the find a way to build common ground, but it's a little bit different. It's like, 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 like find a way to enable others to be good. So those are the things that I try to talk to Holden about to varying degrees of success. I don't know. Most of the time, I feel like I'm just asking him to get his shoes and socks on. We got to leave. We're late. <laughs> well, like you said, he's 10 and it's, uh, there's still plenty of time and uh, you're doing all the right things by the sounds of it. And there's a lot of here. I think there's a lot that I can learn from you, Kirill. Anytime. Yeah. yeah. But you know, thank you very much for coming, for sharing your story. We'll see what the listeners think about this. And, you know, if there are any questions, we can yeah. always do part two. Yeah. Uh, uh, and uh, happy to happy to do so. And and thank you for giving me the opportunity. And and really appreciative your thought appreciative of your thoughtful thoughtful questions. And uh, we'll absolutely do it again if you if you want to. So awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. That's it, folks. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Rad Dad Show. And if you've got this far, I'm gonna go assume that you kind of liked it. So if you could, could you please send it to one of your friends, somebody who needs to listen to this message or you found something interesting in this story, just send it to them, let them know. And the more people listen to the podcast, the more of them I can create. Also, if you go to smashnotes.com, you can find some notes on this and many other podcasts so that you can send interesting bits from every podcast to your friends wherever you find them. All right. Well, till next time. Goodbye.